Can you make a promise today to the British public that you will not go back to Brussels and ask for another delay to Brexit? Yes. And sorry. I can. And would you I'd rather? rather be, I'd rather be dead in a ditch. I think if we don't leave on the 31st of October, this country will explode. Hi, how you doing? We're back and we're ready for it all over again. Stop all the countdown clocks. Cut off the iPhone. Prevent Mark Francois from barking with a juicy bone. Melt down the commemorative 50p coins. Brace yourselves and gird your loins. Write to Tusk for another extension and then call a bloody December election. <laughs> hello, everyone. I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's say hello to our panel. Back on Romaniacs after too long, it's actor, director, star of stage and screen, occasional Tory party infiltrator. You'll have seen on Defending the Guilty recently. It's Ingrid Oliver. Hello. It's been a while. I've been lurching from one personal crisis to another, so uh, here I am. Um, my my uh, my my ongoing uh, saga with and very personal saga with the Conservative Party continues uh, because I got a message from my mother on the family WhatsApp group to say she's standing in the next election for the Conservatives. So oh, wow. it's been a couple. Of, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. Shay, Shay, the Oliver, the Tories, but they yeah. just drag, you drag back me in. back in. Yeah, it, it's, it does feel personal. So where is, where is she standing? <laughs> well, I, I sort of, I was, I was, I was going to. I'm not going to say because I don't want her to get. You're, you know, you're, you're standing on 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 a on a on a, a leave platform, and your daughter's a, a Romaniac and a, all that stuff. So I'm not going to say. But is it gettable? Well, I mean, it doesn't come as a huge surprise because she stood in the last two elections, and at the last election, as we know, the Conservatives at this point thought everything was eminently guessable. Um, this, who knows, is the answer. It's. I think it possibly is. At the moment, it's a Labour. It's a, it's a Labour-held seat, but um, it's a Leave seat. So, so we'll see. But it's been an interesting couple of weeks. It has. It has. We've reached an understanding. Uh, so, look forward to Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also joining us is a man with a possibly fatal combination of tweeters thumb and lobby elbow. It's editor of politics.co.uk Ian Dunt. Hello Ian. Hello. Um you've been two timing us this week by appearing Hello. on uh, on the house with oh, yes, Sam Jimmer and Philip Lee. It was very um, essential. How was how, how was that? How are they at the old punk ass game? <laughs> Well, I mean, the crucial distinction between that podcast and this one, but one that I now plan to change, is that they get beer when they're doing theirs, which is frankly, I mean, it's the clues, you know, it's in a pub. But just on that basis, I mean, it's obviously much better than this one. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, if we could somehow introduce maybe cocktail. It would have to be quite romaniac wouldn't yeah, it? It would have to be cocktail. Nice. It couldn't be beer. Mm. Cocktails are white wine or something. Maybe Prosecco, quite low tariff rates. Let's <laughs> <laughs> we'll see, see what we can do. I second Great. that. Um, so the broadcasters love to treat the start of a general election campaign as very exciting, like a World Cup or Great <laughs> British Bake Off. This time <laughs> feels nauseating and terrifying, um, like The Apprentice. What was the atmosphere like in, in, in the House this week? Are people, are people hyped for the election? Are they nervous? Does it depend who you're speaking Most to? people like us feel the same way that you do, which is they feel full of nausea and fear. I don't really get that. I don't... I. Well, I mean, I've been baffled throughout my life by other people's internal inner emotional states, but I'm more confused than ever now because I just sort of think, like, what, has everyone else been living in some parallel? Like, we've been in the shit for a really long time, and right hanging on the end of the shit, we're about to lose votes, and if we would lose them, the Tories would go for an election, and I think they'd get a bigger majority than if it was before they've passed a deal. So on that basis, it's not like our worst-case scenario has remotely changed. And our best case one has. So I'm, I'm sort of, frankly, baffled. Of course, I, I feel like we're on a great chasm of despair, but no more so this week than we have been, you know, for the weeks preceding it. I suppose it's something you knew was coming, but when it's actually happening. <laughs> and, you know, you look at polls and I don't know. It's just when it's actually a point when the beast is upon you. <laughs> even, though you can, even though you can see the beast bounding towards you, you just think, well, it's a long way off. Uh-huh. And suddenly it's sing on your face <laughs> <laughs> um, our special guest this week is one person who did get their money's worth out of this parliament in name him to coin the term Maybot take a front seat to some of the most shameful and embarrassing scenes in modern British politics <laughs> and bring us such indelible images as Dominic Raab as Captain Mainwaring and Lycra 
and Geoffrey Cox's wobbly codpiece. His writing's now collected in his new book, Decline and Fail, Reading Case of Political Apocalypse, out next week just in time for Political Apocalypse. It's The Guardian's political sketch writer, John Crace. Hello, John. Hi there. So uh, what was your take on this week's last stand in the Commons? It's like the end of a TV season where some beloved characters and narrative arcs are on the way out. Well, I mean, I've got a personal take on it, which is that I, I was really hoping for an election off in the new year because it's going to be cold and dark and my daughter's coming over from America the literally the week of the election um, which means that I probably won't get to see her. Thanks very much for all that. But there is the more, there's kind of more, you know, on a kind of party political sort of existential level, it's felt like the sort of last party left standing with a death wish, really. And, you know, at the end of last week, I was still fairly convinced that the Lib Dem, SNP and the Labour sort of alliance would sort of hold good and you know prevent an election um beforehand and let boris actually have to try and get his deal through and then try and amend it um i thought that that was going to be the tactic then at the weekend the lib dems and the smp jumped ship and started saying december the 9th merely because it was different to december the 12th really they just sort of had to have a kind of point of uh of opposition and at that point i think labor felt they had to had to jump really because i think there's loads of labor mps and i think there's loads of tory mps who actually don't want an election because they're terrified of losing their seats because i think it is genuinely unknowable what's Mm. going to happen i mean we have 2017 as a kind of benchmark from which to we know that all bets are off uh, because at the beginning of that election campaign, the Tories had a far greater uh, poll lead over Labour than they do now. Um, so the Tories won't be taking anything for granted. But, uh, I mean, Brexit itself has become a much more kind of... It will be a Brexit election. I think they'll try and make it about other stuff as well, but it will actually, I think, divide in that and people will vote how they feel about Brexit. Hmm. Um, you'll be losing uh, some of your best material. With people like Kate Hoey, Ken Clark, Oliver Letwin and big man Burko. Um, will we kind of look back on the, on this parliament as a sort of... Um, as a sort of relatively sort of healthy mix compared to what would come next, obviously it's had a lot of a lot of bad press. How do you assess this as a, as a parliament? Well, I mean, there are sort of again there are two levels on which to do it. As for a sketch writer, it's been quite fun, obviously, because there have been a kind of lot of characters doing ridiculous things. I mean, the one thing we have learned from Brexit is that it makes fools of fools. <laughs> Um, and you know that is obviously great for any sketch writer Um, but I also think that in a way actually the parliament has done its job relatively well Um, the country was split 52-48 and you know the parliament has by and large tried to make sure that government didn't actually sort of bulldoze through a very kind of hard right Eurosceptic Uh, Brexit that first of all Theresa May laid down in her red lines and then sort of Boris Johnson adopted in spades thereafter so I I, you know I you know I I think they've done their job they've they I mean everybody says oh god there's a sort of deadlock but but we're deadlocked for a reason (laughs) and um and will you miss uh, Burko in particular Is, is, is one of the great sort of performers in the Commons, this great kind of mad ringleader. I don't think anyone will miss Burko as much as Burko. Um, <laughs> um, his his self love is is immense. Uh, he is also quite a difficult bloke to love, in a way. I mean, because although he's been on the side of the angels, on the side of Parliament against the executive, um, you know, his pomposity and vanity is really irritating and you also can't dissociate him from the sort of bullying allegations within the speaker's office as well i mean they appear to be you know uh they appear to be well substantiated 
Um, so, you know, he is clearly a difficult person. Um, but it's a lot of fun on telly, though. He is a lot of fun on telly. And I, you know, I have a feeling that Lindsay Hoyle will probably get it next time. And he will be a much more doer. You know, there'll be many fewer urgent questions. Backbenchers will, you know, the government will get its way a lot more. Later in the podcast, we'll talk about the election. Is this really Remain's best shot at killing off Brexit? Plus, what's going on in the alpha male clown car that is the People's Vote campaign? <laughs> and with the election about to kick off, what did we think about the survey that claimed a majority of British voters are willing to accept political violence provided they get the Brexit resolution they want? Was it misinterpreted or should we really be boarding up the windows? All that after a couple of announcements from Ingrid. Important news. Most of our listeners use podcast apps or RSS subscriptions to get Romaniacs automatically. But if you're one of those, uh, I prefer vinyl, actually, types who would rather download their episodes direct, please be aware that we're changing podcast platforms. Our new home is Acast, and we've now got our own special page, the terribly easy to remember acast.com forward slash Romaniacs. You can mm. now find all our past shows there as well as every new release, plus our companion shows On the House and Big Mouth are now on Acast too. If you're still using the old audio boom link it's time to change to acast.com forward slash romaniacs but if you're on apple Podcasts, spotify google Podcasts, stitcher overcast Castbox, or indeed any other <laughs> podcast app known to man or beast you don't need to do anything at all that's a relief it's it'll all update automatically meanwhile there is literally only a handful of seats left for our romaniacs live in manchester this saturday the 2nd of november with dorian ian ros and genius political analyst rob ford of the university of manchester We've already rewritten the script three times and the exclusive <laughs> Northwest friendly merchandise is ready and waiting. So get your tickets now at thelowry.com. As for our secret final show of 2019, our faithful Patreon backers already know where and when it's taking place. It's going to be a bit special. So why not sign up for Patreon to find out yourself and beat the rush for the best seats? You'll get dibs on the best seats and mugs and T-shirts and plus lots of exclusive content too. Search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. Thanks, Ingrid. So the election, it's been a long time coming, but now it's here on our face and we're just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> no. um, so you think that Boris Johnson's uh, gamble could backfire here. Um, why and how? Let's put and it when. Could. Let's be, yeah, exactly. And how violently? <laughs> how humiliatingly? Really, I need you to exactly. sketch this quite vividly. <laughs> Will he cry? <laughs> okay, so like big, big, big coulds on everything because no one knows what's going on. And actually, I think there's been it's been quite improved, hasn't it? The, the sense of analysis that you get at this moment of most people are going forward going, don't really know how the fuck this is going to play out, whether they're MPs or commentators. I think it's been really improved from the way that commentators used to behave at the start of this shit cycle of horror, where everyone acted so confident about outcomes that were happening you know, a couple of years away. So everything is very, very good. He obviously has a poll lead. The poll lead is pretty significant, but you know, as John said, less significant than Theresa May's um, at this time in 2017. Um, what does he have against him? And the things against him are quite considerable. Um, the split in Remain is more severe than the split in Leave, but the thing is that it is geographically far better um, set out. So in lots of areas, you do not have the Remain parties challenging each other. So in lots of them, you'll find Labour are challenging the Tories, or the Lib Dems are challenging the Tories, or the SNP are challenging the Tories and not each other. There are some seats where that's not the case, and that's where things get complicated, and that's where the tactical stuff will really kick in. But there are structural advantages to how this could go. The other thing is... I keep on coming back to this. I just I look at Boris Johnson since he's become prime minister and I just think you're not very good at this. He's not very good at it in the commons, as you could see today. He's not very good at it out doing a speech. Remember that speech in front of the police that he did where one of them basically fainted, presumably from boredom and horror as he was speaking. And he just sort of said, oh, fuck it, I'll just... I'll, I'll, basically crack on and you just think you're not really alive in the moment to the stuff that's happening around you I, I, I sort of think he's he's a more problematic candidate than people think he is and the office doesn't really suit him something about the gravitas with it just chats up against how he functions and operates so there are as long as remainers get their shit together there is no reason that this cannot be a real genuine opportunity it does require people to get their shit together to think tactically to not keep on thinking oh i can't possibly support that party the thing that they have to prioritize is I want to stop Brexit. Mm. And secondly, they need to stop sitting there with this sort of sense of fate over them all the time. We're always the ones getting fucked. We're always the ones getting fucked. So you, you get fucked 
if you don't get up and do stuff about it. But assuming that those conditions are met, there is no reason this can't be a good moment for Remain. Because there was talk of, you know, a Remain alliance and pacts and stuff. Was that ever a likelihood? Because, you know, Labour and Lib Dems just enjoy shredding each other. Was it always really going to be the case that that tactical voting was going to have to take place on an individual level with the help of resources like the Best for Britain? It could have been done much better than it is right now, but those are not the leaders that we have. Like I was hoping and expecting Joe Swinton to be better at it than she is now. But the thing is, you've got to think about the incentives, right? Like A lot of what Joe Swinton has to do is to get Tory voters, or at least voters in Tory constituencies, to come over to her. And Mm. those guys are just as sceptical, if not more sceptical, of Jeremy Corbyn than they are about Brexit. So on that basis, she has an, a, a clear incentive to go that way. However, deep down in the guts of how they operate, if you look at some of the stuff that's thrown around internally in Labour, they know it is not a good use of resources to spend too much time attacking the Lib Dems. That is mm. just on a strategic element, it isn't. So although there's a lot of that hatred now, a lot of that tribal hatred, mm. we can reasonably expect, and reasonableness has not been the guest guide to human behaviour over the last few years, but nevertheless, we can reasonably expect that some of that warfare will start to dial down a little bit. Um, John, the, the Tories made Johnson leader because apparently he's a great campaigner who can reach the parts of the country that other Tories can't reach <laughs> and so on. Uh, now there's people just saying, sort of, please leave my town and fainting and so on. Um, was that a kind of... Do you think the Tories misjudged um, Boris Johnson's sort of charm and, and ability with the public? Um I think the jury is still out on that. I mean, my gut feeling is like, Ian, that, I mean, they they may well have done. I mean, Boris is very good at self-promotion. And there was this vision of himself, you know, which I think a lot of Tories hold on to, that he would be a great performer. Um, but, I mean, we'd had sort of a foretaste of this when he was foreign secretary, when he was actually terrible as a for, as a foreign secretary. He had no grasp of detail. He got into sort of terrible trouble over Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe and his sort of grasp of sort of global diplomacy was tenuous to say the least. And um and you know again as as Ian was saying, today we've but we we've both just come from PMQs. And, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn just sort of went for him on the NHS and tried to sort of link it to sort of Brexit, Trump deals, stuff like that. I mean, that's going to be... I don't know how well that line's going to kind of play out overall. Um, But Boris sort of flusters and unravels and... He doesn't have... He isn't as engaging as you think he is. He He's a sort of good middle-of-the-road sort of after-dinner speaker, the sort of person you you sort of apply to when you're kind of when you told that you're sort of up above... You're the people you really want, you can't afford, really. <laughs> and so you kind of think, oh, fuck, well, we'll have to go... We'll have to go with him, because he can sort of tell familiar gags. But... He kind of managed to misjudge almost everything today, um, mm. especially the kind of tributes to Ken Clark. Really, um, it was left to sort of John Burko to do that, and you know, Ken Clark. He's sort of thrown out, sort of someone who's given his whole life to the Tory Party, and he was utterly charmless and graceless about it at the same time. And I think that, you know. People like Ian and I and and you who sort of watch these things sort of nerdishly and obsessively and have sort of seen, but he's but he's a bit shit at this, and I think that there is the possibility that sort of, you know, in the same way that when Theresa May came under public scrutiny in 2017, people kind of thought she's not very good, she's rubbish, and I think the same could happen again. I mean, I think she, you know, he's got a better team. Um, uh, you know, up, you know, I would worry more about Dominic Cummings than Nick Timothy, because mm-hmm. um, Dominic Cummings specialises in playing dirty. That I don't think he's as bright as he thinks he is, or other people think he is. So, I mean, I do think it's all to play for, and I don't think that sort of Boris is necessarily a gold-plated asset. I, I think I think his personal brand is so severely compromised already that. 
that video that they released this morning, the Conservatives, I mean, both Labour and Conservatives released their own like, sort of campaigning videos, was immediately the first thing in it was, we've got to deliver Brexit. Well, he's already failed on that promise. Then there's a picture of him in a hospital. Then you just, that immediately reminds me of when he literally lied. I mean, mm-hmm. said there are no press here to the cameras. And, and it seems that everything he's done, he's already severely compromised. And also it's his lack of sincerity, which is, and I think in a, in a potential, in a, in a London mayor, that's okay because you want someone a bit flash. But actually for a prime minister, the one thing Jeremy Corbyn is, is, is deeply sincere. Um, and, and I think Boris, yeah, I think he'll struggle, actually. Well, in the I would do, Sorry. Uh, I mean, I'd be very interested to know how he plays out with women in yes. particular. Because, you know, I mean, are, are women Tories going to sort of hold their nose and say... Yeah, we we know that he's you know unreliable. You know, we know that you know he, he's sort of basically ditched his family. Um, he's given, uh, or he appears to have allegedly given work and mis you know misused public money to yeah. uh, someone he was having an affair with. Um, does it does he get away with that? I mean, he has in the past, but I don't know if we can in a general election. Mm-hmm. Um, the Labour membership and Corbyn uh, sort of Corbynites love elections, but many MPs are very unhappy about it. The the bookies, I mean, the bookies vary, but it's sort of typical one that I looked at had a Labour majority at twenty to one, minority government five to one. Um, does that? I mean, that seems to me like it might be worth worth a punt because that seems to be based on the current polling figures staying as they are. Um, Ingrid, how? Um, optimistic are you about um labor's chances i would like see i'm i'm very conflicted um because i mean i'm lucky because i'm in a seat that's got a thirty-five thousand strong labor majority so actually whatever i did doesn't really make a difference and i i i, I would be conflicted voting for labor um but like i say i it doesn't matter that much where i am i i, I feel sympathy for people who are in sort of marginal seats that it does make a difference and they will have to probably hold their nose whichever way they vote i i would like to see a labor lib dem coalition that would be my ideal because then you have a sort of remain coalition but also labor isn't completely given access to the keys in number 10 and without without checks and balances so so that would be i that's what i would personally prefer well last week's guest john curtis has predicted record numbers of non-tory and non-labor mps mm. um which sounds very credible. I mean, not so much independence, but certainly the other parties. It do, I mean, we've got to add the note of caution again. Like, obviously, and you know, the fuck am I to talk about what he he suggests? Like, he is basically like the godfather of this stuff. Yeah. However, remember, we keep on talking about the death of the two-party politics, and then last election, those parties hoovered up huge numbers of votes, and there can be a process, a dynamic during the election that you go. It was a Remainer. You know, part of what smarted after that election when the Labour votes were treated as Brexit votes is basically, well, actually, these people that signed up to a manifesto was you knew that lots of Remainers had gone in on Labour as, as a sort of firewall against the worst outcome. So on that, the dynamic could shift out many, many different ways. Obviously, that seems to be the way that it is going right now. Um, John, in your, I remember reading this at the time, but the sort of the the bleak highlight of your book, which is otherwise not that bleak. Lots mm. of jokes, um, <laughs> but the bit where you attend a Brexit party rally and call it one of the most genuinely disturbing political events I've ever attended. And we talk a lot about sort of tactical voting on the Remain side, but Farage today talked about only targeting twenty seats and being. It seems to me quite sort of shrewd and being very uh, focused about what the Brexit party will do. What sort of role do you expect them to play? In this election, do you think people are there are enough levers who are very angry that the deadline has the October thirty first deadline has passed? Um, I think that's one of the great unknowns. Actually, I mean personally, I think if Farage does just go for the twenty targeted seats, it's a mistake on his part um, because I think it automatically makes you a niche product. Mm. It seems so self-limiting, really. I mean, it means that you're, you know, you're setting yourself up as niche to be ignored. And, you know, and even if you're trying to win 20, if you only win 10, um, we've seen, you know, what can happen to the DUP. They Mm. thought they held the balance of power, but in the end they were shafted. Um, So, I mean, I don't know at this stage, but I would be surprised if they just went for 20. Ingrid, there's a few uh, MPs stepping down, uh, including Owen Smith, David Lillington, Amber Rudd. Um, Heidi Allen 
was the one who who kind of talked about intimidation and poisonous politics and just simply she was just like just not up for this shit anymore mm. um do we expect more MPs to be bowing out? And do you think that even some of the people who aren't saying that are kind of feeling that, that just it is just it's sort of murky and brutal and they just they've got other things they could be doing? I mean, I can't even imagine after having gone through the last few years to then signing up for another for more of the same and probably worse. <laughs> and actually, you know, on a serious note, the, the reason I was upset mainly that my mum, apart from our ideological differences, uh, why she was standing was because I was like, look, why would you put yourself through that? Mm-hmm. And, and my mum is, is, a, is a nice person. So and, and she hates bullies. And, and I said, why? Have, why do you look at this government? And go, yeah, this is the this is the government for me, because and she said, you know, she 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 says she's going to stand her ground and she's going to, you know, uh, act according to her own principles, but I said this is a government of bully of re- on, on the left and the right of bullies at the moment, as far as I can tell. It's not a pleasant place to work, especially for women. And I do worry for her. I really do, especially the abuse that, especially female MPs, have been coming under. I think the likes of Jess Phillips have must have some kind of supernatural strength uh, to be able to sustain and, and withstand that constant onslaught. Because I know I couldn't do it. Um, so yeah, I, I worry. God, I don't know how they do it either. No. You know, like, if you spend, like, two days at the bottom of a Twitter pile on by any mm. side or whatever, and, like, after a while it becomes quite oppressive. You know, like, when it's in its mm. second day, of, of just you sort of get the sense of, like, outside the windows, there's just a lot of hate. The idea that that would be coming in physically, as well as on the phones, as well as through email, mm. as well as on social media, mm. relentlessly day after day, and for in a way that it almost never is towards guys, to be about assaulting you, to be about a physical assault on you. I don't even know how the fuck you manage to maintain any kind of normalcy within your brain under those conditions. I mean, it seemed like Heidi Allen was one of those people that was just sort of quite normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just thought, yeah. I would like to go into politics. And she was very moderate, moderate Tory, then obviously... Oh, yeah, I mean, I think, you the, know, just... I always think the amazing thing about Heidi was that she joined the Tory party. I mean, she never felt like a Tory MP, almost right from the start. Mm. I mean... Yeah, I can remember sketching her from the very early days um, of the sort of 2015. She was part of the new 2015 intake. And all the, you know, all the sort of new MPs were sort of towing the line, voting and sort of asking sort of helpful questions. And she was sort of going out of her way to sort of have an independent. I kind of thought, this is this is someone who is not ideologically comfortable in her own party. And in fact, she appears not to have been ideologically comfortable in any party so far. Cause she, I think she's been through about four now. Um, and so presumably she has sort of run out of road, run out of options and decided that sort of death threats and... <clears throat> just the general level of abuse mm. aren't worth it anymore. And how depressing that to be nice means you can't you, you can't withstand that environment. The mm. fact and that's why actually I want I want more women. I think there should be there needs to be more women across the board because I do think that will change the dynamic mm. and the makeup of, of parliament and when people get used to having more women in power then 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 maybe the abuse will lessen but it's going to be a it's going to be a while yet. Um, Ian, before we move on, there were just a couple of things that I think, I mean, obviously the news has moved very fast, but a couple of things that I think people might would appreciate some clarity on is that there were still some MPs, um, Anna Subri, some Labour MPs, still saying um, that they would prefer a referendum. They don't want an election. A referendum would be, in principle, uh, the, the better solution if you're asking people to, to, you know, to make a decision on Brexit, which is fair enough in principle. Was there any chance... Of that happening, though? Not that was I there any see. movement in Parliament that was going to make that happen? Not that I can see. So first of all, I mean, mm-hmm. think about the people you've got to get on to make up those numbers. You're going to have to get the DUP to flip over on. To, I think that those would be the easiest ones to get, the guys that weren't supporting a second referendum already. <coughs> then you're going to have to get the Labour pro-dealers. I can't see anything shifting. You know, people like Lisa Nandy or Gareth, I just don't see it. And then you'd have to get a bunch of independent Tories, people like Rory Stewart or Philip Hammond, and I just I don't really see that either. So there's an awful lot of I don't see. It could be that, like, like Sam Badger, that they wouldn't support it on this deal, but if the deal fell, they would then support a second referendum sort of more in the abstract. Now, my problem there is you've got to go through a lot of votes where the deal may very well pass and, frankly, was very likely to do so. It's important to remember how fucking close we came on that Super Saturday. Kill me for saying those words, but nevertheless, whatever. And then the Tuesday vote afterwards. If those had gone through, Brexit would be happening about now. Okay, so you so, think if there wasn't an election, 
this year, the withdrawal agreement would have another chance to go through. I, if there wasn't the an election, if Boris Johnson had not made what I think was a strategically ill-judged decision to hold an election rather than keeping on pushing that deal through, then it was going to go through sometime in the next three months. And I, I would put the, the likelihood of that about 70 to 80 percent, high enough that you're like, well, mm. this looks too risky. But now imagine that they did manage to pass one vote on it. They still have to pass the legislation enacting it. And to do that by having the no confidence vote, putting someone else in, having some minority government and pushing it through a legislation, it, it just wasn't going to happen. And given that it wasn't going to happen, it seemed like the election was a better route to take. And one last fact check, which is Corbyn says he agreed to an election because no deal is off the table. The bloody table. Um, <laughs> but hasn't, table. hasn't the table just been moved? Yeah, it to, has, to the end of January. Is it ever really off the table? No, it's never off the table unless you either revoke or yeah. do get a Brexit deal. But of course, it's it's fair enough to say it because our concern was, look, this is coming right now. Right. Okay. You know, we're right up against it. That is not going to be the case now. Now there's a chance to become the government that would actually take it off the table. I mean, I think that. I mean, I think the real no deal sort of cataclysm actually comes at the end of December 2020. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, theoretically, you know, we are supposed to negotiate a free trade agreement with the EU, you know, by in the by July, really. Otherwise, we have to ask for an extension. If Boris Johnson refuses, you know, gets a majority, refuses to ask for an extension come July next year, then, you know, all bets are off. As far as I can see, we're sort of on to W2EO terms in 2021. Last week, lots of people were disturbed by an academic survey which appeared to say that most voters in England, Wales and Scotland would accept some level of violence against MPs as a price worth paying to get their preferred solution to Brexit. Reports on the Future of England survey from Cardiff University and the University of Edinburgh centred on the figure of 70% of Leave voters in England and Wales who apparently thought the risk of violence was acceptable provided they got what they wanted on Brexit. But a majority of Remain voters were also cited as accepting some political violence if Brexit was concluded to their satisfaction. Professor Richard Wynne-Jones of Cardiff University was quoted as saying the results left him flabbergasted. Um, Ingrid, I was one of the people that tweeted aghast. I was just, what? (laughs) Madness! Um, And then some people came in, as is always the way on Twitter, with their big sensible centrist (laughs) fact hats on. I fucking hate those guys. Yeah, going, Mm, excuse me guys, calm down. (laughs) Um, And so I was just left thinking, did I just get... Did I get carried away yeah. by by the over-reporting of this study? So tell me more. Yes, I you annoyed me very much because I thought I saw you tweet that and then WhatsApp it to our group. I was like, no, no. In the same way that people went when they retweet Julie Hartley Brewer in the with, with the best of intentions, going, "What is this nonsense?" and "This is awful." I just think, look, everyone, calm down. Um, reading that poll, I just instinctively felt this doesn't feel like it doesn't feel true. It, it doesn't feel. You know, I think we have to be careful of that sort of almost addiction to to outrage and and fear that that has been happening in the last couple of years, where we believe we're ready to believe the worst of everybody very quickly, and going into that and sort of delving into that poll a bit more, um, it wasn't people saying it wasn't people saying I I would be happy to commit violence to to uh, to get the result that I want. It wasn't even people saying I would be happy with violence. They're saying. I would be happy with a certain amount of risk of violence. So it's it's the the potential idea, but they but they but they what that what what that poll didn't address was the fact that those people believe that the risk of violence is very low. But it was violence towards politicians specifically, which well, I think yes, is, that was the framing of the of the question. Yeah, which is very specific and very even the risk of that. I mean, I know the Guardian. I think the Guardian rather unwisely illustrated it with a picture of Joe Cox initially, and then changed the picture. Mm. Um, but obviously that is what you think when you're thinking of violence. It's not talking about perhaps unrest in the streets or general fractiousness. It's, it's, so even if they're, you're happy with the risk of some violence towards politicians, even if you think that's small, is that not a worrying thing? Because my think, answer would be no. Well, no, no, but the question, but, but it was the, in the framing of the question. It's not that they, they think if violence is inevitable anyway, you can't then discount any kind of politics on the basis there might be some violence because you have to, we have to, things have to happen. Uh, we think, but so it's not saying I condone that violence or I'd be happy to see it. It's sort of accepting there is a low risk that that might happen. The way the question was framed, the actual original question was: some people say there might be violence, 
against politicians. Other people say it's Project Fear. So already in people's in the in the uh, in the sort of people being questioned, their mind actual violence was the actual risk of violence was probably quite downplayed. So it's not. It really isn't people saying bring it on it's worth it it's worth it if we get brexit it really wasn't that so was it the methodology or the reporting probably a bit of both and actually that the 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 question itself is quite inflammatory and probably deliberately designed to be that because it's quite headline grabbing um but 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 as with all these things you've got to look you you do have to look at the bigger picture we it reminds me when we were in the gym at school we we learned about russian propaganda in communist russia and how there's a picture and you think it's a certain thing and then you pull out and you realize it's something completely different. So just I would just say we all need to just not uh, instinctively assume the, the worst. John, do you think in the coverage of Brexit, and I suppose there's a, there's a kind of mirror to this in America with Trump, um, that there is an instinct towards sort of catastrophizing? Because I suppose in, in many cases, often the worst thing has happened. Well, not the absolute worst imaginable. Like a very bad thing that you didn't think was going to happen has happened. So you kind of think, well, why wouldn't people think this? Like, how do you kind of, how do journalists sort of walk that line between kind of really being honest about threats or kind of troubling developments without just going, Jesus Christ? Um, I think it's a really tricky one, actually. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, journalists, I think... (sighs) I mean, do are we at fault? I mean, there's always the thought of fault, you know, thought fear of missing the story, you know. And mm. if somebody else hadn't written up this report, then somebody else might have done it. And I think Ingrid's almost certainly right that the sort of methodology wasn't sufficiently kind of looked at. I mean, I don't feel like we're a country on the verge of sort of massive civil unrest. But on the other hand. I do feel that the country is actually more divided now than it was back in 2016 when we had the referendum. I think that, you know, people who support Remain report support it more passionately than they did then. And I think leavers probably want to leave more passionately now. And that the middle ground in politics, which always used to be the bit that, you know, politicians used to sort of uh, fight over... Um, now it seems that we're kind of fighting over the extremes, which is a kind of new level of politics. And I don't know if any of us have really got to grips with how to cover that. What do you reckon? I mean, I don't know. It feels it's quite difficult, isn't it? I don't know about I don't know about you, but like I find I keep on checking sentences I've just written for hyperbole. But then I think. Well, no, this really is like the most important election of our lifetime. <laughs> you know, it's sort of thing yeah. where that, that has to go. But once you say that sentence, of course, you are ratcheting up the stakes mm. of people. It's not just an election. This is a fight for the future of the country. Yeah. But the thing is, it is a fight for the future of the country. Yeah. And so just by accurately discussing it, you're sort of almost contributing to ratcheting it up. I know. I mean, it is extraordinary because, I mean, I was thinking that sort of it's under a month since the Tory party conference. And that was the point at which sort of Boris Johnson was sort of basically talking up no deal. Mm. And so so every week it felt like this is the most important week in Brexit, you know, since, you know, and it's become a sort of level of hysteria. And I kind of think that the sort of public have sort of bought into it as well. I mean, it's the sort of... I mean, as journalists, we're sort of out on our feet already and we've got six weeks of an election to come. And, um, you know, it's it's just sort of no fun, really. There's also the trust problem, right? Like once the government becomes fundamentally untrustworthy, once it is clearly willing to lie to you all the time, you you go into what has to be a slightly conspiratorial mindset because ultimately it is just shitty conspiracy theory. That's what the strategy is. So like right now, for instance, we haven't passed the regulation to stay in the uh, to stay in the EU after the thirty first, right? There's no. a small bit of sort of regulatory passing that needs to happen, and it hasn't happened. And chances are, they plan to do it. But of course, because of their fucking track record, you have to sit there and just be like, "What the fuck is going on with this regulation right now?" Because they sell themselves as these kind of like you know great big hive mind tactical geniuses who are willing to play dirty. So you sort of 
the deterioration of standards is reflected in the journalism by virtue of being delivered by the executive. It has to approach the executive in that way because that is the kind of behaviour that it is operating with. Yeah, I mean, also on a kind of sketch level. I mean, when I started out, you know, the sketch was a sort of a little sort of daily kind of niche product, really, a kind of little diversion to make fun of the politics of the day. Now it's just turned into a transcription service, really. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I couldn't make any of this shit up you know i just sort of just uh, they they go they comes out of their mouth and i just go yeah write it down and say take the plaudits for the lols you know in um other horrible news people's vote we've all marched and agitated and worn stickers um is apparently in chaos roland rudd sacked a couple of senior managers then the staff passed a vote of no confidence in roland rudd a leaked internal report taught of a culture of mistrust and cronyism, failures of strategy, governance and accountability, and called for a clean slate. Now, the personality-based take on this is that it's a power struggle between Rudd and the sort of Campbell-Mandelson faction. Mm. But that internal report seemed to sort of go much deeper into the, into the problems. What's going on, Ian, and why has it sort of exploded into the public now? I don't know. Uh, I've never given a fuck about this issue. It's been coming up, you know, for like 18 months or more and people would talk to you and go like, oh, there's fucking terrible things going on and people's vote. And every time I just think that I don't give a fuck and I find it so uninteresting. Those personalities. Do you remember all those years of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and they would have this great struggle, the Blairites and the Brownites. And then if anyone was actually like, well, what's the difference between Blairism and Brownism? <laughs> there's no fucking difference. There's no difference. Well, the great irony now is that Corbynites call all the Brownites Blairites. Blairites, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which they go, oh, it's all that yeah. bloodshed in vain. Right, but it's fair because there was really basically no, you know, most a couple of shades. Um, and you basically got it's not like really, you know, they come out with a couple of things about it's about whether, you know, we should say we're Remain when we're going for a vote or not. I don't believe that that is at the heart of this stuff at all. It, it's something else. But I just, I don't care. I have never cared. I would strongly suggest that other people don't care either. When you go on a people's vote march, you're not marching under the great sort of organisational glory of this of this thing. You are marching because you want a people's vote. And on that basis, I would I would encourage people to, to ignore as much of this shit as humanly possible. Um, Ingrid, does this make you relieved that we're not going into a referendum campaign when you look at all the kind of this internal report with all of these kind of structural problems that they're talking about like if a referendum had been announced instead of an election and then you found out that this was what our side was Hmm. the state we were in yeah that would be quite scary well i think i mean i i was i'd come around to the way of thinking actually we needed a general election first to give so we had a mandate for a referendum because I, i saw i just felt there were problems with having it uh having one a referendum before an election but yeah, I mean, I, I've never been that comfortable with the sort of people's vote, the sort of branding of it as though it was that it belonged to them, as though it was you know being driven by them. And and all, I, I sort of, as as Ian was saying, I, I marched because of 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 that I believed that we should have um, another say. There was an interesting piece about how how it's it's sort of the personalities of of these big male egos at the top of the train chain of command up to the people's vote and that all the women were sort of all fine and conciliatory and, and, and sort of getting along with each other. And um, I thought, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, well, best for Britain. <laughs> yes, there we go, Naomi, of course, as an example. Naomi. Yeah, Ooh, absolutely. Been, uh, you know, as important in my mind when absolutely. I'm on one of those marches as the People's Vote Coalition. Yeah. With some great people in that coalition as yeah. well. Um, well, talking of which, I wanted to sort of ask you, John, about the kind of... I mean, the status of sort of politicians, Remain politicians in particular, because People's Vote's own polling revealed this sort of messenger problem. Uh, it said Blair Mandelson, the Millibands, Corbyn and even Nicola Sturgeon were all about minus 20 in the popularity ratings. <laughs> Starmer, Campbell, Khan and Ken Clark in the minus 10 range. The only really popular Remain politicians, according to this poll, are Jess Phillips, Ruth Davidson, Clive Lewis, Caroline Lucas and Liz Kendall. And obviously it looks like, oh, this is a terrible problem. Who can, you know, which politicians can represent Remain? But I can't imagine Leave's big names faring any better. Is this just the sort of the status of politicians at the moment? Is that nobody, apart from the ones that most people haven't heard of, is really popular? 
I I think it goes back to what Ian and Ingrid were talking about trust levels, really. I don't think that people particularly trust politicians anymore. So I think to have a sort of trust rating of sort of minus five is actually fairly high, really. Mm-hmm. Um, just at the moment, that sort of... Um, you know, because if if someone like Jess Phillips can't get into double, you know, into into positive numbers, then well, she was in positive numbers. She was, Jess was Phillips she? Was, yeah. She was actually in positive. Okay, well, well, fair play to her because she just sort of deserved it. Mm. Because I mean, in the debate on the election yesterday, she was the only person who made a sort of decent speech because mm. she was the one who actually pointed out that um, it was all an exercise in futility really because the the election isn't going to answer the questions it's being held to ask this week's special guest is the guardian's political sketch writer john crace who's collected works on the fall of may and the dawn of bojo are collected in decline and fail out next week um John, this has been a lively time in your trade. When did you take on the job? How far back was that? Uh, I became the Guardian sketch writer in, back in 2014. Um, previously, Simon Hoggart had been doing it for sort of 20 years. And um, he 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 got seriously ill and then, and then died. And, um, I mean, I had no thoughts of, you know, I don't think anybody ever sets out to be a sketch writer. I mean, it would be an odd life ambition i mean considering there's only about four of us around so it would be someone that's almost destined to failure really as an ambition um but i got an email asking if i'd like to do it and and when i and when i sort of took it on um it was the it was the last year of the coalition and you could literally feel the sort of tumbleweed sort of rolling through the sort of house of commons because there was sort of literally nothing going on and um, I did think that it might just be, you know, I mean, I was I've always been a politics nerd. So there was no question in my mind that, um, yeah, as a satirist, there is no better place to be than in Parliament. Um, but I had no idea that it was going to kind of turn into a sort of rolling clusterfuck. Did you really? ask the monkey's paw for better material in 2014? <laughs> if only there was more to write about. Um, well, I mean, it was, it's kind of weird because, I mean, I, I think sort of almost every election I've managed to, to, that I've covered, I've managed to call wrong. Actually, I got the Scottish referendum right. That was the first big election that I covered. But I got the 2015 general election wrong. I didn't think the Tories would get an overall majority. I called the referendum wrong and I called the last general election wrong. So I am... So if if I say that, you know, hopefully that the Tories will get a majority this yes. time, um, great, great, great. Then, then hopefully we'll be on course for another kind of crace margin of error. Really. <laughs> There's some... Um... There's lots of stuff in the book. Chris Grayling's imaginary fairy company, Rory Stewart's magical summer, mm. uh, Theresa May's Kirby enthusiasm performance in Salzburg. Mm. Um, is there is there kind of one story that that sort of stands out that in a, in a Channel Four drama about the last year's shenanigans would be the kind of uh, the symbolic tableau? Well, I think you've you've alluded to my my favourite person of all time, which is Chris Grayling. I think he is definitely one of the unsung heroes of Brexit, really. Um, because he he is the complete idiot, really. I mean, he is there is no way that you could ever imagine he there has yet to have been a sort of job that he can do well. I mean, in all the cabinet positions. And it's remarkable how he stayed in the cabinet so long. I mean, I think the Labour Party did a rough count. And, you know, since he, you know, he's been in cabinet, he's cost the country more than £3 billion, which actually means that you could have paid him £1 billion to stay at home and watch telly, and the country would have been had two more hospitals. Uh, wow. He's like a shit Mr. Wow. Ben. Every yeah. week is a different job, which he's terrible yeah, at. Yeah, I mean, the Seaborne Freight <laughs> imaginary ferries. I mean, that was just the sort of most, the classic of all time. You know, his no-deal preparation was to give 
a £13 million contract to a company, a ferry company with no ferries and with no ferry route route from uh, Ramsgate to Ostend (laughs) and whose terms of incorporation had been copy and pasted from a pizza company. (laughs) And when he was questioned about this in the House, he seemed most upset and said, well, you've got to give people a chance. And I kind of thought, well, we've been giving you a chance for an awfully long time. And... Um, where do you um, fit into the, the Westminster ecosystem? Like, do you sort of intersect a lot with the, the lobby correspondents, or is it you and Quentin Letts and the other two in your own little sketch corner? Like, how much kind of traffic is there with is it all part one big happy family? It sort of is. I've made a point. I mean, different sketch writers have different you know, modus operandi. Some of them are sort of fairly kind of solitary, kind of feral creatures. But I'm, <laughs> I, I've always, I've always felt worked on the um, assumption that the satire works best if you actually understand what you're satirizing. Because you know, you can. It's very easy to make a few jokes, a few puns, and stuff, and surface stuff. But I kind of think that the kind of politics is too important at the moment. So I work very closely with my Westminster team. You know, of a you know Guardian politics does, and also you know talk to other people uh, lobby correspondents from other uh, newspapers to make sure that I've actually you know what I think's going on is actually going on and you know occasionally they'll say you know and I say I don't understand this and if they say I don't understand it either then I'll think it's okay then it is genuinely absurd um but, you know, the, I kind of look on the team, you know, part mm. of a kind of team who, you know, they basically save my back, really. Um, and, and reading you, a similar thing occurs to me as when I'm reading um, Marina Hyde, which is that there is a version of this, which is where it's a sort of jolly game with no serious consequences and just a parade of colourful mm. characters. Mm. Um, do you think there has to be, particularly at this period, there has to be some sort of moral force behind the jokes that that really that it's the kind of, it's a degree of sort of outrage or disgust or exasperation um, which kind of elevates the form? Um, I'm not sure whether it elevates it. It's certainly driving it at the moment, as far as I'm concerned, and I think as far as Marina's concerned, I mean, when I've talked to her about it, um, because it does feel like we are in really kind of, desperate really sort of unchart i mean it's always said uncharted times i mean but it is you know brexit is the biggest constitutional mess since the end of the second world war and you know we are not being well served by politicians that have been you know lying through our teeth you know not just the you know the on the conservative side but on the labor side as well and i think it's very important um for sketch writers and for satirists to remember you know not necessarily to take sides um and to be equal opportunities and when jeremy corbyn is useless to call it out i mean i often get a lot of flack below the line when i you know have a go at jeremy corbyn but i kind of think i'm not there to just sort of prop up the labor party and Mm. to sort of call him out there has to be a kind of um honesty and integrity to the satire um and how do the mps react is it part of the deal that they just sort of laugh it off because that's the tradition of the sketch or does do some of them bear grudges and, and give you the stink eye across the commons tea room um some of them are okay about it i think some of them just sort of avoid i mean there is there is a sort of old uh, sort of working sort of mantra about this that if you kind of really rude about one mp you make friends with 649 <laughs> others really because there's nothing and one politician likes more than another fucking up generally because they think oh they're for but for the grace of god um i think some of them take it as uh you know part of the sort of rough and tumble and try and be kind of quite jolly about it but, I mean, by and large, you don't get to see the ones, you know, I don't have any contact with anyone in the cabinet. Um, and generally, I try to make the sketches about, you know, the big issues of the day, which are invariably, you know, government and shadow cabinet figures, really. 
Who's been surprisingly game about it then? Someone that you've you've been quite harsh about and just thinks that it's all just good fun. Uh, well, Gavin Williamson has tried to pretend that to me. Um, Matt Hancock has oh. a bit as well. He would, wouldn't he? Um, I, that, I, that was my favourite line, actually, especially because he's been doing the rounds this morning on, on, on the interviews saying that we're not going to sell off the NHS. Even uh, you wrote, uh, uh, even Matt Hancock, who has never knowingly met a bum, he doesn't feel compelled to lick. <laughs> That's quite full on, isn't it? Yeah. Hilarious. Yeah. But then therefore but he would he... be, because of that, he would therefore have to lick yours for making which, which, <laughs> which, Yeah. Well, yeah, he has therefore proved the point rather. Um, yeah. And I mean, just recently before a Brexit select committee where Steve Barclay was appearing, he said, oh, God, what are you doing here, John? And I said, I'm here to find out what's going on. Um, and he said, oh, I thought you were here to make me look ludicrous. And, and I said, oh, well, that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it was sort of fairly good natured. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe they've got little sort of dolls that they kind of stick <laughs> pins in. I don't know. One of the Manchester Guardian's original sketch writers, the fantastically named Norman Shrapnel, uh, never socialised with politicians because he said I was worried it might dilute the purity of my hatred. <laughs> oh, wow. Is this why? Is this why you, you have to keep your distance? You don't want them to become too uh, too human. You don't want to feel bad when you're uh, writing about them. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't feel like that because I actually think you know part of sketch writing is. Um, unbelievably, uh, I mean, or hard to believe, possibly, that you're also looking for heroes as well. Um, you're looking for people who are doing the right thing. It's You don't want everybody to be a kind of prize clown, narcissist, sort of incompetent. You are, I mean, I am looking for sort of people like the Jess Phillipses, the Keir Starmers, people I can kind of respect as well. And I mean, I don't just have, you know what need them as characters to sort of offset the uselessness of everyone else, but as something as for, that I can believe in as well. Well, you mentioned two people that I think that a lot of people would think of two quite sort of prominent uh, figures. Um, can you can you give us a deep cut? Is there like somebody that's perhaps less prominent that when they sort of stand up to speak in the comments, you're just like that it, it sort of restores some faith and you think, oh, right, they really know what they're doing. This is, this, this is kind of encouraging stuff. Um, You've got 648 left. Yeah, I've got 648 left. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I always felt with Dominic Grieve was coming from the right place, you know, that... Um, and he, you know, I thought it took a lot of courage what he did to, to, to be kind of vilified by his own side of mm -hmm. you're trying to stop Brexit. You are, And he was, you know, just saying, no, it's too important to get wrong. And, you know, he has basically sacrificed his po political career. I mean, not his other. He'll go off and make another, you know, very nice living as a lawyer again, I'm sure. Um, I, I don't think he'll get reelected as an independent. Um, mm. Um, you know, and I kind of felt the same about Anna Subri as well. Um, uh, I feel much more ambivalent about the sort of the Nicky Morgans, you know, because you never know what side they're on. And those are the ones almost that I kind of have the least respect for because they never know, you never really knew where they were. Sometimes they would say, I could work, can't work with Boris. And then, yes, I can work with Boris. And, you know, you can feel, you can see them sort of, sort of extending their sort of moral compass to try <laughs> and sort of fit in, you know, to intersync with their careers as well. Well, it seems quite basic, really, isn't it? That, that there is something thrilling about hearing someone that, that, that knows what they're talking about and believes in what they're saying. And then there's almost a kind of visceral reaction to that kind of a politician. And there isn't. And the opposite to that is someone where you just think whenever they're talking that they're just saying what they need to to get ahead. It seems sort of quite basic. And yeah. yeah. There seems to be far more of the latter than the former. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think it is. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's when you can feel the honesty and the integrity in what they're saying. 
Um, and it sort of comes through. Um, you know, we had a bit of it today with sort of Ken Clark as well. Um, I mean, I, I would probably disagree with him on almost, actually not almost everything about, but on a lot of stuff. But I kind of think his, the you know, his purity of motive is intact. And, you know, that's what really counts. And finally, just following this stuff is exhausting, let alone uh, writing about it um, regularly. What do you do to kind of take care of yourself or sort of ease the pain so you don't end up just writing fuck it all over and over again, like in The Shining? I don't know the answer to that, actually, because I do feel like... I do feel, in a way, kind of corroded. My mental health has been corroded by the process as well. I would like to be one of these people who could say that... Actually, I just sort of go home at night and I just shrug it all off. But this stuff, I care about it. I kind of, and it does sort of get to you. And, you know, I sleep badly. I go to bed sort of probably unhealthily looking at Twitter to mm. see what's going on. I wake up in the morning to read the sort of Politico um, uh, email from Jack Blanchard and I go just sort of let out a scream. Um, and it sounds like it, good routine. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. I it's mean, very relatable. Yeah, I mean for someone who is sort of depressive and has some sort of mental health issues, anyway, I'm almost certainly in the wrong job. Um, but I'll kind of hang in for the time being. Well, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. <laughs> Early on, we mentioned the On the House podcast where MPs Sam Cheema and Philip Lee meet friends, rivals and Ian Dunt in a Westminster pub to talk over the week in politics. On the House comes out every Friday, so if there's a Romaniac-shaped hole in your Friday, as there will be this week, you might want to listen and subscribe. From the current episode, here's Sam Cheema and Ian talking about the pressures faced by MPs who don't follow the party line. Actually, what the government is doing is raising the temperature and I think that impacts on MPs as well and that is incredibly worrying especially those ones without some kind of tribal defense right like you guys will know this more than anyone that if you're in what if you're if you're locked in you're a Tory backbencher you're voting for whatever Brexit you're kind of safe if you're in the Lib Dems you're going to vote against yourself you're kind of safe you go to this protective mechanism if you are so you Philip know, and I've moved to a safe haven essentially yeah but, but you would have had periods in between that where it was much less fucking comfortable and you guys kept your shit together now, look at someone like Lisa Nandy, who, like, no one's going to challenge Lisa Nandy's decency, but you are just adrift out of a tribe, out there in the cold, and the pounding abuse you're going to get every day from both sides is unbelievable. The podcast is now petering out it's in its lame duck phase so it's time for the brexit time capsule john craze you're the guest what will we need or miss if we ever leave the eu um i, I don't know I, i'm gonna sort of betray sort of my because i'll probably get sort of slaughtered for this but i kind of think orchestras really i think that sort of freedom i mean a lot of musicians um and and also kind of pop dance, i i think you know with the problems of freedom of movement i mean there is i'm i'm a huge opera fan and there is a huge ongoing debate within the opera world um about whether kind of singers musicians um are going to be able to kind of travel freely from bit of it. and the whole point of i mean opera has been and classical music has been one of the great sort of things that have brought Europe together. I mean, you know, we, we don't just sort of live on a diet of sort of Benjamin Britten and Edward Elgar. You know, there is sort of Mozart, Verdi, Beethoven. You know, there is sort of such a rich cultural history. And some of the greatest interpreters are uh, European. And, you know, they may find it more, much more difficult to work over here. This week's foreign language clip is in Dutch and it's from listener Edwin Tendam. Ik ben heel erg boos op de Engelse politici dat we deze keer weer niet mee mogen stemmen. Edwin speaks for all EU27 citizens in the UK when he says, I'm very angry with the politicians because we, yet again, are not allowed to vote. Thanks also to Donald Tusk, whose farewell message 
sounds so much like someone in a movie about to step out of the airlock or fly his plane into the enemy base <laughs> that it deserves to be quoted in full. To my British friends, the EU27 has formally adopted the extension. It may be the last one. Please make the best use of this time. I also want to say goodbye to you, as my mission here is coming to an end, and I will be returning to my home planet. <laughs> I will keep my fingers crossed for you. I'm not sure there are enough fingers in the world, but it's a lovely sentiment. <laughs> Remember, it's your last chance to get tickets. Romaniacs Live in Manchester this Saturday with special guest Rob Ford. Go to thelowry.com, technically in Salford. Now it's time to thank our latest Patreon backers to the stirring sounds of Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, available for free at ampleplay.co.uk. Hello and thanks from me to Catherine Kavanagh, Sarah Ballard, Kelly Walton, Stephen Cotton, James Ogden, Richard Ernie, Christian Hunt, John Hill, Jess, David Morris, Paul Cunnell and Richard Bowles. Hello and many thanks from me to Sarah Woodison, Utz, Tony Elwood, Lauren Gorn, Helen Chauhan, Zephyr 12, Charlotte John, Dan Kelleher, Jonathan Kidd, well, I think I know, hello Jonathan, uh, Colin Scott, Stuart Brown and Lena Seawood. And thanks for me to Tom Higgin, Tom Worth, Axel Mayer, James, Sean Thompson, Greg Campbell, Justin Marcham, Dirk Cook, Andrew Reid, Christopher Jones, Tom English and Liz Tolfrey. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Lenski with Ingrid Oliver and Ian Dunt. The producer is me, Andrew Harrison. Audio production is by Elsie Bath at Soho Radio and Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.